This is Guns and Butter. is something that has been neglected in American and Western education in general. And it's a real problem because we're up against it right now. We're up against leftist totalitarianism and it's not being recognized by many people outside of those dissidents who can see it. And that's that's it. Um, and anybody that does see it and calls it out is considered some sort of a right-wing fanatic. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Today's show, Resisting Totalitarianism, The Power of the Powerless. Michael Rechtenwald is an author and professor. He was professor of liberal studies and global liberal studies at New York University from 2008 to 2019. He has also taught at Duke University, North Carolina Central University, Carnegie Mellon University, and Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of 11 books, including Thought Criminal, Beyond Woke, Google Archipelago, The Digital Gulag, and The Simulation of Freedom, and Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and Its Postmodern Parentage, an academic's memoir, among many others. He is the founder of the online news service CLG News. Michael Rechtenwald, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's great to be back. I read with interest your latest essay, Living in the Age of COVID, The Power of the Powerless, where you discuss Vaslav Havel's concept of post-totalitarianism, where the elimination of free speech and self-censorship is internalized by the population itself. You compare that situation to what is happening today in the United States. How have we gotten to this point? For instance, you discussed the concept of social justice in a recent panel on academic freedom. What is social justice, and is it just, or is it about something else? Well, that's a great question, and I've been treating the question of social justice in its present incarnation for about four years, starting with my book, Springtime for Snowflakes, and I've come to conclude that social justice is not about justice at all. Social justice had meant justice for particular groups, groups particularly that had been discriminated against or worse in history, like African Americans and others. And it was a means by which to rectify those inequities. But since the rise of the current uh, social justice. It's taken on entirely different characteristics. And I would say that it has something to do with not only postmodernism, as I discussed in Springtime for Snowflakes, but also it has taken on characteristics uh, that are very similar to Stalinism and uh, Maoism, especially during the Cultural Revolution from 66 to 76. And it is about uh, the revocation of the rights of speech and association and other types of uh, rights that people have enjoyed, including property rights. Uh, it is about abrogating and destroying those rights 
in the name of so-called justice. This social justice movement has picked up elements from the cultural revolution like struggle sessions and uh, self-criticism, struggle sessions we saw in things like call-out culture and cancel culture. And uh, we've also seen something like the destruction of the four olds in, in the Cultural Revolution, old ideas, old culture, old habits, and old customs. All of these things have been uh, really part and parcel of this contemporary social justice. It's not your civil rights social justice by any stretch. Is the current concept of social justice or the social justice movement egalitarian? Has it done away with hierarchy? I don't think so. In fact, I've argued that what it does is it takes, it takes what it deems to be the existing hierarchy and it, and it flips it on its head. It's an inversion ideology such that those who were seen as being on the top are basically bumped to the bottom and vice versa. And then it becomes a struggle to be uh, the most subordinated because once you're the most subordinated, when the, totem, when the totem pole is flipped on its head, you end up on top. So this is why we see a race to the bottom, this kind of race to be deemed the most subordinated or the most oppressed. And it's been dubbed the oppression Olympics rather uncharitably, but there's something to that, this kind of competition to be on the bottom because it is known that once you're on the bottom, you'll be on the top when the totem pole is flipped upside down. So I don't think it's egalitarian at all. I think it's an inversion of the uh, hierarchy, at least as the hierarchy is seen by the social justice uh, warrior, if you will. And in your essay, you mentioned, quote, axiomatic oppression ranking framework that establishes this new social justice hierarchy based on how many vectors of oppression you have. How are vectors of oppression determined? Yeah, this is basically, this is intersectionality. That's the, that's the social justice uh, ranking system. Basically, intersectionality claims that people are subordinated in multiple ways by multiple vectors of oppression. So, for example, these are counted in effect. You know, if you are, you have one type of subordination like being black and another, say, being a woman, and say you have a third being a lesbian or even better, a transgender person, then you are intersected by two, three, four vectors of oppression. And the more vectors, the more oppressed. And in terms of the social justice hierarchy, the better off you are because you'll be put on the top. And this happens, this is taking place. Uh, this, this is being used in classrooms across the country. Uh, They're taking this kind of ranking and inverting the hierarchy in uh, this kind of system of teaching in which uh, you don't get called on until last, for example, if you're a white male or a white straight male would be the very last. So these, these ranking systems are actually being used uh, in a real practical way in many contexts. 
What is postmodernist theory, and what does it have to do with social justice? Well, postmodern theory is a school of thought that first arrived out of France in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, it's associated with such thinkers as Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Jean Baudrillard, uh, and a host of others. And it's really well known for being rather relativistic and subjectivist. And uh, it's challenged the, the Enlightenment ideals, uh, the Enlightenment ideas of rationality, of objective truth, and so on and so forth. And I've argued that uh, it's been imported into social justice and it's been used in, in many contexts in order to support some of the claims being made by social justice people, people that are considered social justice activists, uh, including such things as basically having one's own truth and this, this being something that is un, unchallengeable because when, when there is no objective truth, one's truth is whatever one says it is. And you, you really can't, you can't possibly oppose the truth of any of the subordinated uh, category, people of subordinated categories. Therefore, whatever they says goes. And I've argued that given the requisite amount of power, this allows people to put through basically any kind of unsupportable claims that, that they will, and uh, then to have them backed up by force or the threat of force. Uh, and this works in various contexts. It's working in the context of critical race theory. It works in the context of transgenderism and other such contexts where there is no objective truth. What I say I am, I am. Uh, it, it works on the basis of language. Language is what constructs reality according to, to postmodern theory. So if I say I'm this or that, you must abide. And, uh, and this has been used rather in, in authoritarian ways such that you can't challenge these things and it's become a legal matter in the case of, say, a parent who has a child that claims to be transgender at age four. The parent has no rights to uh, supersede that or to say, you know, I don't want, uh, you're not that because this is now being taken as a legal stand, a legal matter that can't be challenged. In Canada, for example, you could lose custody over a child based on these such, such claims. So postmodern theory is a relativistic, subjectivistic, anti-objective, anti-rationality uh, movement, an anti-enlightenment uh, movement that, that has challenged the bases, not only of all of those things, but also the basis of the egalitarianism that came out of the Enlightenment and individual rights as well. It's challenged those on these grounds that these things are effectively individual rights are only the rights of those in power. And so we must destroy those rights because those rights are the source of our subjection. Uh, so that's really how postmodern theory fits into the social uh, justice rubric. Well, is there a criteria for subjective truth? Yeah, the criteria is basically whoever is more subordinate, their truth is more unassailable. 
So the lower you are on the social justice hierarchy, or the higher, as I've put it before, because this is an inversion ideology, the more unassailable your truth is. And as I say, this can be used in, and has been used in rather authoritarian ways, because once there are no objective criteria for truth or objectivity, then basically it is about who has the most power behind them whose views count as true. And that's another really axiom of postmodern theory. That is, according to postmodern theory, truth is a plausible narrative backed by sufficient power to make it true. Uh, so it's very much derived from a Nietzschean notion of the will to power. And that there is this, this complete disregard or skepticism, even nihilism regarding objectivity. Well, does postmodernism then posit that there is no objective reality? Yes, the objective reality is only the reality that the powerful claim to be objective. That's effectively the stance of postmodern theory. I know someone who taught at Georgetown University back in the day. He was recently in contact with a former student of his who is now a professor at one of the top 10 U.S. universities. He noticed that after her name and Ph.D., her signature said she, her, hers, something like that. And he asked, what's this? And there was a pause, and she said, I can't talk to you. They're listening. And then she hung up. What do you make of that? Well, what that is, is that he's not aware that um, one's identity is now determined by one's claims, uh, and therefore uh, one can claim one's own pronouns. Uh, These pronouns are then enforced in universities such that if if a student claims to be, you know, you can even make up a pronoun, no matter what you say it is, according to most universities, you must abide by those pronouns that a student uses. So if they want to say their pronoun is zir, Z-I-R, Z, zir, and zir, which is a common one, uh, then you must use those pronouns referring to that student. If you don't know this, then they would say, basically, it's not my job to educate you. You're not up with the nomenclature. Therefore, you're an oppressor. Uh, So only the oppressors are unaware of this kind of nomenclature. And of course, this is used all through Twitter, where the left identifies themselves with pronouns and they put their pronouns after their username and things like that. And if you're not aware of this, this means you are unwoke and you're an oppressor. That's why she hung up. I'm speaking with author and professor, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Today's show, Resisting Totalitarianism, The Power of the Powerless. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then this uh, ideology is being enforced in academia, is that right? Oh, absolutely. This is where it started, and uh, it's being enforced with vengeance. Um, And to the the exclusion of many people who have lost jobs on, on the basis of this, whose careers have been wrecked, uh, who have been uh, canceled uh, for not abiding by the social justice uh, creed, by the dicta of the social justice creed or the 
the axioms of it. If you don't abide by this creed, you're, you're history. Um, and this is why I say it's very authoritarian, verging on totalitarian when it has complete power, it becomes totalitarian. But it's an authoritarianism uh, that brooks no dissent at all. No dissent is, is really permitted. This is the truth. And if you don't accept it, then you are you are retrograde. You are you are basically one of the four olds that has to be canceled. You cited a 1955 essay by philosopher Herbert Marcuse, "Repressive right. Tolerance," as the playbook for the modern left. What did Marcuse propose in this essay, "Repressive Tolerance"? Oh, yes. Well, it was 1965, um, but that's not important except that it became, this became, this essay, Repressive Tolerance, became a playbook for who was allowed to speak and who wasn't, what could be censored and what couldn't. According to Marcuse, tolerance should only be accorded to those who are fighting for so-called progressivism or progressive ideas or leftism really. And everyone else should be silenced because their views are violent and their views are uh, oppressive and their views are criminal really. And they should not be aired because he said that the, the establishment already gives them, uh, gives them a biased preference. They're already given preference by a biased society and likewise, they have to be silenced in order for, for uh, truth and progress to, to occur. And uh, this essay has become the playbook of the modern left in that they're very censorious and they are very much opposed to any speech that is deemed retrograde, that is deemed oppressive. So your speech becomes violence, uh, according to them. And they are, according to Marcusa, uh, justified in using violence to shut down your speech. So it's, it's often said that, you know, your speech is violence while my violence is mere speech, uh, with reference to this view. And Marcusa became the father of the new left, really. Uh, and uh, the repressive tolerance essay has become like a blueprint for how the left treats speech. It's a very, uh, it's a very uh, convoluted argument that he makes, but the end result is basically the only speech that's tolerable is leftist speech, and everything else must be shut down. I remember in the late 60s, he was teaching at the University of California, San Diego. Now, with regard to this uh, essay, Repressive Tolerance, from 1965, was that uh, immediately embraced by the left? Um, I wouldn't say immediately, but it became, it started to sort of permeate the leftist thinking. And... This is where I think the left went off the rails in terms of uh, freedom of speech and individual rights, because hitherto the left had really been uh, supportive of individual rights of expression and so forth. I mean, the free speech movement really was a leftist movement at Berkeley. And uh, when 
when Marcuse's ideas became uh, basically uh, au courant, uh, it, it eventually worked its way into the leftist vocabulary and ethos, and then it effectively became taken for granted. This is not to say that many of these people actually read this essay. It just worked its way into uh, leftist uh, ideas, you know, sort of subterraneously, and it became, you know, effectively the protocol for how speech was to be regarded. What is classic liberalism, for instance, and how does it compare with social justice? Classical liberalism is basically the liberalism of John Stuart Mill and his book on liberty, in effect. And that is to say, it regards individual expression as sacrosanct and not to be silenced, that everyone has a right to free speech, free association, and as long as as long as your uh, activities, including behavior, does not encroach on anyone else's rights, then it's perfectly permissible and should be protected. Uh, this was the basic idea in On Liberty, but it really is also enshrined in the U.S. Constitution in terms of speech. The only speech that's forbidden is speech that incites imminent violence against others. And even the category of hate speech doesn't exist in terms of the U.S. Constitution or constitutional interpretation. So this is basically the American ideal uh, of free rights, of individual rights, I should say. And uh, it is different than social justice because social justice deems the speech of the dominant to be violent in say by itself before anything else. In other words, it is violent because it represents the suppression or oppression of other people. Therefore, it needs to be silenced. This is why we see, you know, uh, people that don't abide by leftist uh, ideas silenced on campuses throughout the United States. They've been, you know, not only have, have they been silenced, but campuses have been burned down at Berkeley, for example, when Milo Yiannopoulos was to speak, and even innocuous speakers such as uh, Christina Hoff Summers, the uh, equity feminist, has been silenced, and uh, Charles Murray, the co-author of The Bell Curve, was completely shut down at Millbury, call it Middlebury. So um, this is really the ethos of the social justice left is that any member of the dominant group, when they speak, their speech is oppressing. It's oppression, and therefore it can't be permitted. And this goes right back to Marcuse's uh, axioms in repressive tolerance. And then, it, of course, it has to do with who's defining who's dominant, right? Right. And this is given by virtue of this intersectional ranking system that you can't be oppressed or you can't, you must be a dominant, you must be dominant if you have certain phenotypical characteristics. And so, it, you know, it reduces down to really quite, it's quite essentialistic in that it deems people to be of the dominant group based solely on their phenotype. Uh, are they white? Are they male? Uh, are they heterosexual? things like that, these are the criteria that would make you part of the dominant oppressive group. 
and nothing about your background, even your even your uh, economic status, really mitigates that. It makes no difference. And even if under, uh, say, a leftist totalitarian situation, which I believe we're under right now, you're really not dominant at all. In fact, your speech is very much beleaguered, and you're in a beleaguered category. You're still considered dominant uh, based on this hierarchy, and you'll, you'll be shut down on that basis. And even if you're shut down, you're still not oppressed. So it's very, very, very curious, isn't it, that though this group, the social justice uh, ideology, has really become dominant in our society, those who are uh, those who are deemed, you know, the oppressors are still the oppressors, despite being silenced and I should say, really more than silenced, canceled from society in many ways. You mentioned the term intersectionality. I never understood that term before. Is that an, an academic term? It started off as a term in uh, critical legal studies. And it was a way for um, legal scholars to argue on the behalf of subordinated peoples, suggesting that, you know, we needed to take into consideration all of the all of the kinds of oppression that somebody is under, like racial, uh, sexual, sexual preference, gender, etc., etc. And um, it became the... Uh, the axiomatic framework for critical race theory, which is very dominant now, very, very prevalent. And it has um, informed the social justice movement entirely. So it's it started off in what they call critical legal studies, which, by the way, is based on critical theory, which was the school of thought that Marcuse was a was a proponent of. Critical theory came from the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, and Marcuse was one of the Frankfurt School theorists. Uh, so the social justice creed uses the intersectional ranking system as its basis. In one of your footnotes to your essay, Living in the Age of COVID, The Power of the Powerless, you say, quote, as I have written elsewhere, the communist threat may in fact originate from the ruling elite, as may be the case now. You write about corporate socialism and contemporary leftism. Let's begin with corporate socialism. What is corporate socialism? I believe you borrow this term from Anthony Sutton. Is that right? That's right. Anthony C. Sutton who was a uh, historian and economist who actually worked for the Hoover Institute for many years until they actually canceled him late in his life. Um, he derived this term corporate socialism to understand how it was that major corporations and bankers seemed to favor a form of socialism, strangely enough. And this goes against everything that socialists believe. They, they believe that capitalists are naturally opposed to socialists. Well, as it turns out, and he points out very well, they weren't always and they haven't always been opposed to socialism at all. As a matter of fact, he traces the funding of the Bolshevik revolution to Wall Street bankers. 
and he, he explains why, in fact, they would want to, why and why, in fact, they would actually endeavor to set up and support socialism because they're monopolists when it comes down to it. So what standard state socialists and corporate socialists have in common is they both favor monopolization. Uh, the, the state socialists favor monopolization by the state. The corporate socialists favor monopolization by corporations. Uh, and so corporate socialism is a form of socialism in which you have corporations monopolizing the economy and then you have kind of an actually existing socialism for everyone else. Uh, this is kind of a socialism on the ground and corporate oligarchy on top. And in fact, that is what I think is developing in the United States. I think that the COVID crisis has brought it into uh, focus and has made it actually come into uh, greater fruition. And I think this is really why we see and we see this in, in a way that you've lost millions of small businesses based on the COVID response to the crisis. And you've lost and you've seen the, you know, accumulation of wealth with these corporate players. You see Amazon taking over more and more production and distribution while small businesses are wiped out. Uh, you, you see this two tiered system being put into play in the World Economic Forum has actually advocated this by saying, by the year 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. Yet, it doesn't suggest that these corporations will own nothing. In fact, they'll own everything. And you'll be more or less just a serf, in effect, a consumer and a, you know, a worker maybe. You might not even have to work. You might be on universal basic income. But the point being is you have a two-tiered static hierarchy. Um, and this is really what we're tending towards as, as we speak, is this two-tiered corporate, uh, this two-tiered kind of neo-feudalism with these major corporations monopolizing the economy. And what they have in common with state socialism is they hate the free market. They hate laissez-faire. They don't want laissez-faire economics. They don't want a middle class. Uh, and so they both target the middle class and attempt to eradicate it. And we see a lot of policies tending this way today. I'm speaking with author and professor Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Today's show, Resisting Totalitarianism, the Power of the Powerless. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And then what about contemporary leftism? Do leftist politics align with the globalist interest of monopolistic corporations, or are they at odds? Well, you would think they'd be at odds, and the, you know, the standard leftist act idea is that they're definitely at odds, right? Because you know, they oppose capitalism. But if you look at the kind of things that they both agree on, they're very much in line with each other. Um, the corporate globalists, uh, monopolists, they want open borders. They want the free flow of people and goods. Uh, they want uh, one world government. Uh, they don't want to have to deal with numerous different regulations of different countries. National sovereignty is an obstacle. Um, they favor um, uh, the production of new identity categories because this leads to 
niche markets and also it helps to fracture the population into fractious groups who are always at bitter odds with each other. Well, I mean, the left happens to favor the same things. Oh, they also favor the, the abolition of the family because the family is a, a buffer between uh, corporate state power and the, uh, in, and the individual. And so they both favor the, these same things. The left favors open borders. They favor uh, global world government. They call it the uh, workers of the world unite or, you know, international socialism. But it's but it, in its incarnation, it becomes globalism, really. So there's no real difference except for the final moment, which never comes. And that would be the moment in which the socialists would finally overthrow capitalism. But that, that moment never comes. And the, the corporate globalists are willing to go along with the socialists because they know that moment will never come. In fact, they're letting the socialists do the groundwork for them to establish their corporate uh, monopolist hegemony. This is why I say the left is an unwitting foot soldier of the corporate globalists. Yes, that's an excellent point. And you mentioned uh, the elimination of borders. And what about the nation state itself? Yeah, the nation state is a real impediment to the globalists because it, it involves, in the case of the United States, pesky things like the Bill of Rights and other matters that would be obstacles for their complete dominance. Uh, and so they really want to get rid of uh, nation states. They stand as obstacles for their complete control. And, um, and interestingly enough, the, the left is also anti-nationalist. They hate nationalism. They hate any form of nationalism. And they always call every form of nationalism by the you know, the most derogatory terms available from history, like uh, fascism and Nazism, and they associate all forms of national nationalism with these most egregious historical examples, but there have been and are other forms of nationalism that are not fascist, that are not, you know, jingoistic, that are not necessarily at all expansionist, that have nothing to do with fascism whatsoever. Yet they continue to slur it that way, and the, and the corporations really able, enable them to do so, and they, they do it as well. They are more than happy to go along with this slanderous way of approaching all forms of nationalism as fascist, as Nazism, etc., etc. Well, you're talking about uh, right-wing oppression with regard to fascism. What right. about... Uh, uh, the Soviet Union and uh, communist China under Mao. Now, these were oppressive, similarly oppressive, weren't they? Yes. In fact, I mean, I've tried to point out on numerous occasions without making any kind of equivocation between what the Nazis did in, in terms of the Jewish people and the Holocaust and all that, because there were that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, use of people's actual inescapable identities was was morally speaking the worst. But that being said, there is no question that you know communism was uh, the most murderous 
political ideology in modern history uh, with a hundred million corpses in its wake and also imprisonment and uh, all kinds of persecution, uh, you know, mass starvation based on uh, idiotic planning, central planning and things like this. And uh, so this is often, you know, not talked about. It's not even mentioned in the universities. It's not mentioned in high schools. It's not mentioned in grade schools. You never hear anything about the crimes of totalitarian leftism. The only thing you hear is about the crimes of, of Nazism. And those were egregious crimes. But really, if we want to look at it in pure numbers, it's the communist regimes that did the most damage to the most people. And uh, that had, you know, very oppressive, criminal, criminal states. Uh, they operated without any laws. They, they operated without any uh basis of legal rationality, and they just did whatever they wanted to political criminals. People were, politics were criminalized. People were put in gulags uh, based on their political identities, not on anything they had done criminally. So this is something that has been neglected in American and Western education in general. And it's a real problem because we're up against it right now. We're up against leftist totalitarianism and it's not being recognized by many people outside of those dissidents who can see it. And that's, that's it. Um, and anybody that does see it and calls it out is considered some sort of a right-wing fanatic, which is not the case because, I mean, if you look at the Black Book of Communism, which is a real compendium of communist crimes, the writers of that book had been Marxists, had been communists themselves, but they finally came to look at the objective truth about what communism had done and they couldn't deny it. And uh, they likewise wrote that book, which became a real, uh, became a real controversial book in terms of the left. They just went crazy over it because it really it really bared a lot of historical reality and made it undeniable. So that was um, that's that's the history of the criminality of totalitarian leftism, which must not be lost sight of, because we could end up in that kind of situation again. And it's not like the right is the sole uh, is the sole political headquarters of all political malfeasance. That's not at all the case. Now, speaking of communism, Michael, you used to be a communist, didn't you? Yes, I, I was. I was a, a communist for 25 years. So I wrote uh, communist texts, published in communist journals, uh, you know, was a member of various communist groups, I tried out many different communist groups, from Trotskyism to uh, even Maoism. And um, finally, whenever I was finally attacked by the left, when I came to critique social justice, it all just broke open for me and I just saw the kind of totalitarian nature that was really just beneath the surface of the egalitarian rhetoric that was being paraded around, and I thought, I want nothing to do with this. 
Do you think that communism is necessarily authoritarian? And if so, in what ways? That is to say, is communism a system that needs to be enforced rather than occurring naturally? Well, that's a great question. And it's really the crux of my turning point. Because I was a left communist. That is, I was left of the Bolsheviks. I believed that the workers collectively could take over the means of production and democratically uh, control society. And economically, too. Especially economically. That they could control the society economically. And I believed that the state would wither away, as Marx put it, and that you would have no state at all. You wouldn't have a, a totalitarian state. You would have freedom. But I came to realize that that's not at all possible and that it's necessarily the case that communism is not only authoritarianism, but it must be totalitarianism. That is to say, it must not allow any competition in the realm of ideas, speech, behavior, or anything, because in order to keep the keep people from having any kind of property outside of state ownership, it must be squelched in every way possible. So any competing ideas have to be squelched. Any competing uh, ideologies must be squelched. Everything that opposes that system has to be done away with. And the first thing to go is property rights. And really, when you get rid of property rights, everybody becomes a slave because the first property right is in one's person. And the disposal of one's person's labor is really an extension of the ownership of oneself. Once that is taken away from you, you're now under a totalitarian system. And that happens every time you institute communism. It's totally inevitable. I'm speaking with author and professor, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Today's show, Resisting Totalitarianism, the Power of the Powerless. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. At the Worldwide Freedom Rally in New York City on Saturday, one woman wore a sign that said, the final COVID variant will be full-blown communism. Do you think that the pandemic and the lockdowns are leading in some way toward a communist system here in the United States? Well, that's very timely that you should ask me that question because I'm working on an essay right now entitled COVID Communism. And um, I believe that, in fact, the COVID crisis is leading towards communism. And I think that lady's sign... As crazy as it might look at first glance or from a surface reading is actually very penetrating in its its thinking because COVID crisis is definitely leading towards communism. One of the things it's doing, it is it's, it's eroding people's property, first of all. It is taking, you know, the property of, of you know, the average earner and effectively eradicating it and then... Uh, That is through lockdowns and so forth. We're losing property. Secondly, it's eroding rights, individual rights. And this, as I said, must be taken away in order to institute communism. And when you do take it away, 
and uh, you have the economic scenario where you have no property and you have no rights, uh, all of a sudden you're under communist totalitarian dictatorship. And COVID is definitely tending towards that, the COVID response. I'm not saying it was, you know, that the COVID uh, was instituted somehow or that this is a conspiracy, uh, that it was unleashed for that reason. But it is true that much of the COVID response was derived from Chinese communist propaganda and that, in fact, the lockdowns were initiated by China in the Wuhan district and then exported to the world based on their supposed success in Wuhan. But the interesting irony there is that the lockdowns couldn't have succeeded in Wuhan because the virus escaped to the rest of the world. So the whole COVID response is based on a false argument, a false syllogism. There was uh, a lockdown in Wuhan that was supposedly squelched, supposedly squelched the virus, yet the virus leaked to the rest of the world. And therefore, we must institute lockdowns everywhere. That is obviously a, a flawed argument. And that's been the basis of the whole COVID response. It's really come out of the CCP's own actions and their own propaganda, and they propagandized to the West. It's well known that they propagandized these things through the media and social media to get the West to accept these conditions. Uh, and it just so happens that these conditions are tending towards communism. And getting back to corporate socialism and communism, it sounds like what you're talking about is really the exercise of pure power, the monopolization of power. That's what both extremes are about, right? Yes. I think, you know, and some would say that even, even a, a very well-known leftist philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, says that what, what we're coming to is a kind of... Uh, communistic capitalism, as he calls it. And that is, we're getting the worst of both worlds. We're getting the alienation of capitalism plus the totalitarianism of communism. And we're getting them together. And that is really what I've been describing as corporate socialism. It is the same thing. We're getting capitalist monopolies at the same time as we're getting socialism on the ground it is a kind of communistic capitalism or capitalistic communism, whichever you prefer, really makes no difference how we put it, because what it is is what it is, and it's not good. Um, it's definitely power, as you say. It is unmitigated power. It is the rights of states to do whatever they will to their citizens, including in, in Australia, to completely lock them down to completely abrogate their rights such that a, a person sneezing in an elevator has become a target for manhunt, for a manhunt. And uh, rescued dogs or dogs that might have been rescued by people were shot so that people wouldn't travel to, to rescue said dogs. I mean, this is brutality. And, you know, the squelching of any kind of opposition, we see this in every country. We see it in France. We see it especially in England and or Great Britain in general, and we're seeing it everywhere. 
that people are rebelling against this COVID communism. They're, they're being crushed by the police. Um, and so that it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very, very frightening scenario that we're in. And, um, uh, I, I, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but unless something breaks, we're going to be broken by it. And with regard to your latest article, Living in the Age of COVID, the Power of the Powerless, uh, where you discuss Václav Havel's concept of post-totalitarianism, you say, quote, Dissidence derives from a background of people's attempts to live within the truth. It is not a matter of formal structures and will not emerge from or necessarily as political parties or institutions. The appeal is to the aims of life and not to any strictly political means and ends. It sounds that what you are saying is that totalitarianism or authoritarianism is against human nature, or what you refer to in your essay as the aims of life. Yes. How would you characterize the aims of life? The aims of life are to do the things that people do to make life fulfilling and meaningful, um, meeting other people, uh, pursuing their their dreams, pursuing their objectives, owning a business or even being a volunteer for something or even owning a nonprofit organization or anything that they think and believe is really something they find worthwhile doing. But the totalitarian system is a bent on crushing those objectives and making those objectives impossible uh, such that you become a dissident by virtue of just wanting to live a life. And uh, the aims of life are all those things that we want to do. And uh, they, come, they come up into opposition against this system that wants to force you into compliance uh, with their aims. And their aims are, are really control and uh, ownership. Uh, they want to control you and they want to control all goods as well. Uh, and so those two are part and parcel of each other. You can't have control of all the world's goods unless you have control of all the world's people. So getting control of the people is a way of controlling the goods, and getting control of the goods is a way of controlling the people. And so that's what they're attempting to do, and I know it sounds quite nefarious, but I think it is. It is very nefarious. And, and again, you say that dissidence derives from a background of people's attempts to live within truth. There's uh, an Islamic imam that uh, I sometimes watch on YouTube, and one of the things that I heard him say is that truth is embedded in the universe. So all of these attempts at totalitarianism and... Uh, all of powerful squelching everyone else, these things ultimately don't work, do they? No, they don't work ultimately. They will end in disaster and they'll end in failure. The question is how long will the suffering go on? And that's really the only issue. 
And then how will people survive it while they're in it, you know? And that's why in the essay I talk about their building of parallel structures and a parallel polis or a parallel counterpublic. This is a way for people to network together, to support each other, and to, you know, give each other sustenance, not only in terms of goods and services, but also in terms of the truth of what they know to be the case that is being you know, the truth of their senses about what's happening as against what the system is trying to propagandize uh, them into believing. So one of the most important things is to resist the, the propaganda. And this takes a community of people who are willing to be honest with each other and to live within the truth and truth speaking and truth maintaining, to maintain the truth as against the lies. You know, one of the primary truths of, of the universe is that each, each individual person is utterly unique, and that uniqueness cannot be abrogated. It cannot be destroyed. And this is something that is being, that is a threat. It's a threat to the system, because when you assert your individuality, you're asserting your individual right to be you, and the system doesn't want you to be you as such. It wants you to be a part of the system, a cog, a mere piece, an alienated object that has no selfhood and that has no you know, selfhood that's speaking to itself about what it is. I know this sounds a little abstract, but I don't know how else to put it. It's a very difficult thing to get a handle on. But the truth is basically not knowing what the system is trying to do to you and what it is that you are. That, it, that it's trying to take away. You just mentioned creating a parallel structure. Now, do you see this already happening or not? Oh, yes, absolutely. These parallel structures are being erected all, all over the place. I see them happening electronically, digitally, with uh, different types of groups that are assembling to give themselves sustenance, to you know reinforce their perceptions so that they know they're not going crazy because they are being gaslit by the by the system they're supporting each other and they're creating parallel structures that way in many cases these are communications parallel structures and i i have erected a few of them myself i've got groups on telegram uh called the thought criminals uh these are groups that I've formed in order for people to communicate with each other that hopefully aren't cancelable, they're encrypted and hopefully can't be broached by the authorities. They're not doing or saying anything illegal or they're just trying to stay alive. They're trying to keep their own truth alive and they're trying to find ways to exist in the truth despite all of the lies that are being propagated. And then they could become economic. For example, there are things called freedom cells that are being created by agorists. Uh, these are people that are developing anarchic uh, cells that are attempting to provide economic and social support structures for people. There are other types of developments like this that are underway. Um, there was a group called uh, that was that was promoting the greater reset and they are attempting to do the same. So I think these parallel structures are in fact coming into place. Right now, 
they're kind of pre-political formations. They're not people trying to promote any particular political program or ideology. They're merely trying to live within the truth. Michael Rechtenwald, thank you. My pleasure, Bonnie. Thanks for having me. Speaking with Dr. Michael Rechtenwald, today's show has been Resisting Totalitarianism, the Power of the Powerless. Michael Rechtenwald was Professor of Liberal Studies and Global Liberal Studies at New York University from 2008 to 2019. He has also taught at Duke University, North Carolina Central University, Carnegie Mellon University, and Case Western Reserve University. He is the author of 11 books, including Thought Criminal, Beyond Woke, Google Archipelago, The Digital Gulag and the Simulation of Freedom, and Springtime for Snowflakes, Social Justice and its Postmodern Parentage, an academic's memoir, among many others. He is the founder of the online news service CLG News. To subscribe to CLG News, send an email to signup at legitgov.org. That's sign up at L-E-G-I-T-G-O-V dot O-R-G. He can be contacted through his website at michaelrechtenwald.com. That's michaelrechtenwald.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?